All right, a couple of weeks ago, there was four of us that did go down to Temple. We had to check out the sights and the sounds of Temple, and David was giving us a, a tour of uh, a layout of the downtown area where the, the people pockets are, and also he showed us some potential places for future meetings, and then we saw where they're going to have their vision night, which is down in the railroad, the railroad station, right? Yeah, down in Temple. I mean, we walked in there, and there were guys having their railroad tracks everywhere, and trains going everywhere, and I used to think, it just brought back all these horrible memories. It was like, it never worked like that for me when I did that stuff. The train would always stop, the track would short somewhere else, but it was great to see. But on our way down, uh, the four of us, you know how you get in conversations and things start rolling, and pretty soon you've solved every world problem there is? just with four, four guys. Well, first we heard a report from Steve Martin on Haiti, and we heard about what God had done down there while he was down there with this group, and we heard about, well, what's the, the restructuring look like? How's the church responding? And we got into hearing what God had done, and we heard the restructuring, and the next thing we know, we've solved how to solve Haiti's problems and the church's problems in Haiti. And then I think we even started moving towards uh, the political issues in the United States. And I think we tackled the economy and health care. And, and we might have even moved to Iran and, and uh, Israel. I don't know. We were on a roll. We were solving the world's problems. Now, coming back, though, it was a little different story. Our conversation slowed down a little bit. It slowed down because someone, and I won't, this person will remain nameless, said, Jeff, why do you think we're so inflexible? And by that, this person meant personally. Why are we so inflexible personally on a personal level and on a church level? On a personal level, issues like why are we so controlling and agenda-driven and perfectionistic? Why do we always have to be right? Why are we so anxious and so fearful? Why do we get so blindingly self-righteous so many times and feel so superior and so condescending towards others. And then we move to the church level, you know, stuff like this. Why does our trellis structures and programs rise to the level of being sacred and push out the real mission of the church? Gospel, growth, and people. Why does that happen so easily? Why does this happen too? Why do our personal preferences and our desires rise to the status of sola scriptura and actually exceed and go beyond the greatest greatest law of all, which is to love others? Why does this happen? Why do we seem to, as a church-wide, not just as church, just church-wide, why does it seem that biblical community is so hard to get? The kind of community we easily get is the kind where we surround people that are like us, We surround ourselves with people that agree with us. We surround ourselves with people that complain like us. Right? Why is that? This is what this guy said. Well, here's what happened after that. I went, um. (laughs) And one other guy said, I think we're chasing the wrong goal in Christianity. I think that's where the answer lies. And he went on to say this. The goal of Christianity is, I'm not going to tell you. It was a private conversation. 
What is the goal of Christianity, brothers and sisters? What do you think the goal of Christianity is? Christian, right now, what are you pursuing as the ultimate end, as the driving force in your Christian life and in your Christian identity? What is it for you? What are you pursuing? What do you think the Christian life's all about? What are you doing right now? What are you chasing after? Is it to be holy? Is it to study the Bible? Is it to pursue community? Is it to grow in being a a teacher and a mentor to others? Is it praying more? What's your agenda? What are you after in the Christian life? Do you want obedient children? Do you want more discipline? Do you want to stop that sin? What's the agenda? What are you after? What's the goal in the Christian life? Those of you who are not Christians, I have two thoughts for you. This is the first one. What do you think the goal of Christianity is? Just take a stab at it. I mean, I want you to think like you're at the zoo and you're looking at the Christian animal. What are your first impressions? What do you see the Christian running after? What do you perceive the goal of Christianity to be? And then here's the second thing I want to say to you. Our passage this morning is going to tell you and show you that the goal of Christianity is far, far, far better than you ever believed. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. It's two verses. It's going to go quick. So buckle your seatbelts. All right, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would unleash your spirit upon us. We thank you. We thank you that it's not our state and our feelings that ultimately matter. It's not the inclinations and sincerity and genuineness of our heart that ultimately matters. But it's the achievement of another. And so, Lord... Would you, would you open our eyes to his achievement this morning? To me, to all of us, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, we went off-road a little bit with Peter, didn't we? We took a two-week off-road excursion with Peter. And the reason why we did is we had to do this because Peter, in Galatians, found himself in the middle of a big mess. Verses 11 through 14, Peter's in a huge mess, a mess of racism, a mess of religious and uh, racial superiority, self-righteousness. And to top it all off, he gets in an apostolic brawl with Paul over what real Christianity is all about. Real Christianity and, and this revised form 
were now competing in the churches in Galatia and at Antioch. The Gentile mission is on the line. No small thing. We needed to see, though, because we saw this big mess that Peter was in, we needed to get another side of Peter. We had to take another look at Peter. We had to see another side of Peter. For some of us, this might be your first look at Peter, and you're like, gosh, is that what Christianity's all about? And at this point, you say no. You follow Paul at this point. But there's another side to Peter, and that's why we took that excursion, the side of the work of grace in his life. And so what we did is we looked at two genuine encounters of grace salvation that Peter had. The first one he had, we found in Luke 5. Then we went to John 21 and we saw the last recorded one he had. And we needed to see that. And one of the things we learned from this off-road excursion with Peter, and I haven't yet highlighted yet, is this. Christians are a mixed bag (laughs) of grace and grime. If Paul... Paul was to describe it. He'd say, listen, Christians are justified sinners. Christians are a mixed bag of deep, deep flaws. Real, deep sin. And unbelievable grace at the same time. So we're this weird kind of people Christians are. The capacity for unbelievable, big-hearted love, compassion, and demonstrations of another world. And the unbelievable capacity to roll around the dirt still. Phenomenal in one person. Now, those of us that try to live our life as if this is not true that you're not simultaneously a sinner and justified, you're not simultaneously a person of grace and grime, you hurt yourself. And you hurt your relationship with God. And you hurt your family. And you hurt the church. And you hurt your relationships. And you hurt your Christian impact and service. Okay? To put it positively is this. Christians who embrace their grace and grime state are the most free people on the planet. They're the most loving people on the planet. They're the most powerful, impactful, most human people on the planet. Oh man. Don't you want to be in that group? Don't you want to live like that? Boy, howdy. We're back to Galatians. So we took a little excursus into Peter. That's what Peter has showed us in a nutshell. Well, now we're back to Galatians, and we need a little review here. Remember, Galatians is divided into nice three major sections. Each one is two chapters. Chapters one and two, chapters three and four, chapters five and six. It just kind of breaks down that way. So whoever the guys were that put the, the numbers in, they did a good job. Broke it down nicely. Three parts. The first part's Paul's apostleship. The second part's Paul's gospel. The third part's Paul's freedom. In the first part, we see that that Paul's apostleship is being threatened. Remember the the follow-up team that went to the church in Galatia, these guys that were just becoming Christians and churches were being formed. There was a a team from Jerusalem that came in. It was a follow-up team, a discipleship team. But they started teaching stuff. 
First, they started doing this. They started attacking Paul's apostleship because, because they started saying that Paul was a, a second-class apostle with a second-rate gospel message. And so Paul has to defend his apostleship. And the reason why he does is because real Christianity's on the line. Because God had married, had wed the message with the original messengers. These original messengers are apostles, these writers, these eyewitnesses to the resurrection, these writers of the New Testament. Their message and their messenger status were wed. So if you attack one, you attack the other. So Paul has to defend his apostleship. Chapters 1 and 2. Part two is Paul's gospel, three and four, chapters three and four. This is real Christianity. This is where the number one wonder of the world is and the other world. This is the stuff that Peter says angels are hanging over the battlements of heaven, staring in wonder and awe. Gabriel, did you see that? The stuff in chapters three and four, the angels can't comprehend. It's outside their realm. Chapter 5 and 6, Paul's freedom. This is what believing the gospel looks like. In other words, when you really believe the gospel, it does stuff to you. The gospel is the primary go mover of the Christian. And so we see in chapters 5 and 6, we see how it impacts the person, how it impacts their relationships, how it impacts biblical community, how it impacts the mission to the world, okay? And what we come to find out is freedom and joy and power that arise out of grace-driven obedience, stuff that, that we desperately need to hear today because we lack joy and power and freedom in our obedience today. We got duty We got tighten the belt a little tighter. We got guilt down. But we don't have joyful, powerful, freeing obedience. All right, today we make the transition between Paul's biography and Paul's gospel. And guess what that transition is? Verse four, verses 15 and 16 is the transition between Paul's apostleship, his biography, and the gospel. Verses 15 and 16 are the key verses of the whole book. The whole book of Galatians is writ small in two verses, 15 and 16. In other words, Paul has packed the whole cosmos in two verses. I didn't want to preach it. Scary stuff. Pressure. Didn't help that Elizabeth Bradshaw walked by me and says, don't blow it. Don't make a mistake. (laughs) Where are you, Elizabeth? Thank you very much, dear. Here we go. All right, here's the first thing we need to see in this passage. You ready? Verses 15 through 16. Here's the first thing you need to know about verses 15 and 16. Remember, key verses of the whole book. The whole cosmos packed into these two verses. The whole book writ small in two verses. Here's what you need to know. They follow verses 11 through 14. Don't forget that. Verses 15 and 16 follow verses 11 through 14. In other words, verses 15 and 16 follow Peter's big mess. 
So to get the point of 15 and 16, you got to understand the context of 11 through 14. And so what's happening here is that when Peter, Barnabas, all the Jewish Christians in Antioch, when they separated themselves from the Gentile Christians in Antioch, when they refused to eat with them, remember, to eat in the ancient Near East is to show open friendship, open acceptance. It shows welcome. You embrace them. And when these dear brothers refuse to eat with the Gentiles, their behavior told lies about real Christianity. That's why Paul says in verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, do you get that? Their behavior was telling lies about real Christianity. That's why he writes 15 and 16, which is the heart of real Christianity. Their behavior was attacking what he's talking about in 15 and 16. In other words, Paul was saying something like this. Peter and company, if real Christianity is everyone is saved by grace alone, why, why, why are you acting superior in your race and your religion and your spiritual performance as if you're saved by your race and your religion and your spiritual performance? Paul is saying, brothers, salvation is not by achievement. It's by grace. So Paul's making it very clear here, isn't he? I mean, when you put the two together, verses 11 through 14, 15, 16, he's making it very clear. How you treat people ultimately comes down to how well you're believing the gospel. Do you see that? How well we treat people ultimately comes down to how well we're believing the gospel. How is the gospel gripping us? How is it growing in its application to our heart? How is it doing in the deeper levels of our life? As it does so, it produces incredible fruit. As if it doesn't, we still demonstrate more dirt and grime than grace in our life. So how do you know that? I mean, that's the question right off the bat when we look at 15, 16. How do you know whether you're really believing in a grace salvation or not? How do you know that you're, you're not out of step, as Paul would say, with the gospel, in our behavior, in our actions, in our communication, in the real life? How do you know that? Here's some things I thought about. Well, when you criticize, gossip, and slander others, you're not really believing in grace salvation. You're believing in achievement salvation for yourself and for others. Here's another one. When you can't forgive, when you burn with bitterness, when you fantasize about getting even, when you return evil for evil, insult for insult, you're not really believing the gospel. You're believing an achievement salvation. Here's another one. When you separate yourself from others, when we look down on others, when we judge them, criticize them, when we get angry at others because they have different views of things and different standards of things that don't rise to the level of sola scriptura. What are those things? Well, we all know what they commonly are in the church today, and each church has its own little prized standards and views. 
And when we elevate those things to sola scriptura, and then we look down on those that don't have those views. I mean, what are some of the hot ones? Come on. What are some of the hot ones? Well, I'll say them if you won't. Music, bingo, worship music, big one. What else? What? Politics. Very good. How about how you educate your children? Right? How about standards of modesty? How about keeping the Sabbath? How about use of alcohol or tobacco? How about parenting? I remember. Oh, man. I remember before we had kids. And I remember sitting in restaurants alone when I was a campus minister or when we just got married. And I remember leaning over and saying, I will never, ever allow my kids to do what those kids are doing over there. Mark my words, honey. That ain't happening. Let's move on. All right. (laughs) Parents. Parents. How about this one? Parents, when you discipline in anger, you are not really believing the gospel. You're not really believing in grace salvation. You are believing in achievement salvation for your child and for you. Okay, let's move on. That's just way too uncomfortable. The first thing we need to see about verses 15 and 16 is what? They follow verses 11 through 14, which is what? They follow Peter's big mess. They follow racism. They follow self-righteous superiority. They follow an apostolic brawl. That's what we need to know. So if I was to give you the point in its negative form, which is exactly what I'm going to do right now, it would be this. Big messes always come from believing bad theology. Big messes always come from believing achievement theology. Where achievement theology reigns in your heart, reigns in your relationships, reigns in a church, you will find messes everywhere. Big messes. Now, let's state it positively, shall we? Let's see the point in verses 15 and 16 in their positive form. Let's go back to the car ride back from temple. I'm going to tell you who answered. His name was Shane or Newsom. Of course. Gosh. It's so humbling when the guys that you train go way beyond you. But it's also exciting. Shainer answered the question, why we're so inflexible. This is what he said, quote, the goal of Christianity is not to get fixed, but faith. Ooh, I like it. I said, bud, that's my sermon on Sunday. Real Christianity is not about achievement salvation. Real Christianity is not about fixing yourself. Real Christianity is about grace salvation. Real Christianity is about the achievement of another. And the goal is to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Amen. Here's the point. Faith in another's achievement is the goal of Christianity. I mean, look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but what? Through faith in Jesus Christ, number one. So we also have, number two, believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. He can't get enough of it by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. In one verse, Paul uses faith in Christ three times. Three times. And just in case we miss it, drop down to verse 20. You ready? Look at verse 20. And the life I now live in the flesh. Now you get the impression that he's getting about the goal of things, isn't he? The life I now live in the flesh. Paul is giving you what the goal in his life is. He's giving you what the goal of the Christian life is. The life I now live in the flesh. I live what? By faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see in verse 16 the achievement salvation contrast with grace salvation going on? Do you see achievement salvation or what Paul is calling works of the law salvation contrasted with grace salvation or faith in Jesus Christ salvation? Do you see the contrast going on? It's all over. Boom, boom, boom. Not this, this, not this, this. You know what Paul's doing? He's giving you the two ways that you live. He's giving you before all the cosmos, before all the world, here are the only two ways you can live. It ultimately boils down to these two ways to live. You either live by building your life around achievement, salvation, works of the law, or build your life around grace, salvation, faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. One way is salvation, one way is freedom, one way is power, one way produces love, one way is the way of the Holy Spirit, so there's lots of fruit in it. The other way is not salvation, but self-absorption. Not freedom, but fear-driven, guilt-driven, slave-driven. One way is by real peace and security and safety in who you are, and the other way is you just vacillate between superiority and inferiority you just can't find yourself one way you love others you're full of compassion you give grace because you've been given grace you forgive because you've been forgiven you accept because you're accepted and the other way you just mistreat people because their achievement stinks one way is the way of the Holy Spirit the other way is the way of the flesh And he's going to bear that out in chapters 5 and 6 even a little more, which is one of the greatest chapters on the unfolding ministry of the Holy Spirit. But notice that it's connected to the way of salvation. And he's going to connect the way of flesh to the way of achievement salvation. Okay? Now, why is Paul doing this? Why is he making this contrast? Why is he trying to make it so clear that the goal of the Christian life is faith and not getting fixed? Why is he contrasting works of the law with faith in Jesus Christ? Why is he doing this? Do you know why? Because the most beautiful word in all the Bible is mentioned three times in that verse. It's the word of wonders. Justification. That's why. This is the first time justification is mentioned in Galatians. And when he mentions it, He can't say enough of it. Three times, justification, justification, being justified. Paul literally, oh, 
You could see him writing this. I mean, you can just see him. But you know what's really incredible about this too? What's incredible about verse 16 is whether you are consciously aware of it or not, Paul assumes you care about justification. Isn't that incredible? Whether you feel it or not, he assumes, as he's writing, you deeply care about justification. Now, this gets your attention, doesn't it? Because many of you are sitting there saying, I don't even know what justification means. How can I care about it? Or, I do know what it means, but it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't feel anything about justification. It doesn't do anything for me right now. And Paul is saying, oh, you care about it. Now, a lot of us in this room possess some level of understanding justification. So we're doing things like this. You're thinking about me in this way. You're thinking about Texas way. Of course. Of course I care about justification. I'm a Christian. <laughs> it's how I became a Christian. It's how we became Christians through that powerful word justification, right? Now, I want, but I want you to realize here, please, before you move on, please realize that Paul is doing something very interesting here. He's pushing justification on Christians, not on unbelievers. He is pushing justification on Peter, Barnabas, and the Jewish Christians, and the Galatian churches that he's writing to. He's not pushing justification on those that are outside the church that don't care a lick about what's going on inside of the church. He's pushing justification on Christians. Paul assumes that Christians care about justification because justification is what makes a Christian go. And he just proved it. He's saying, whether you get what I'm saying or not will determine whether you're a big mess and mistreat others or whether you have a big heart and you love others. Others of you thinking, I can't spell justification. <laughs> oh, I, won't, I won't embarrass Ray. I won't do it. What are you talking about, you're thinking? Do I got to go to seminary to go to this church? I, I heard rumors about you Presbyterians. You pocket calculator doctrinal people. Right? I've heard about you. This is what, what you need to see. Paul assumes you care about justification even if you can't spell it. Why? Because everyone here longs for justification. Because every single person in this room and outside these doors was made for cosmic acceptance. In other words, you long for someone who's big enough and who matters enough to grab you and look you in the eye and say, you're okay. You're safe. You are more loved beyond your wildest dreams. So be at peace. Find rest. Be free. You can stop thinking about yourself. You can stop worrying about yourself. And you can get on with living. Every single one of us longs for that. justification.
Galatians is sometimes referred to as many Romans. In Romans, Paul wrote these words. Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I wonder what it was like, don't you? Do you wonder what it was like? Have you ever wondered? I I did this last night. I wonder what it was like when Jesus first opened his eyes in the tomb. I wonder what it was like when his feet first hit the ground. I wonder what it was like when that stone rolled away. I wonder what it was like when he walked out with the tomb empty forever. I wonder. One thing you don't have to wonder, what you don't have to wonder is what he achieved. When those eyes clicked open for the first time, he achieved a flawless righteousness. When those feet hit the ground for the first time, he achieved a perfect righteousness. When that stone rolled away, he achieved the righteousness of God. He achieved what Adam couldn't achieve. He achieved what the most religious people on the face of the earth called the Jews couldn't achieve. That's the meaning of verse 15 and 16. When he starts off and says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, but we know this. We know we can't achieve it. And then drop down to the end of verse 16, the last phrase in verse 16. It says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The literal translation goes like this. Literally, out of the resources of the law, In other words, out of the resources of your achievement, no human flesh will be accepted as righteous before God. There is no cosmic acceptance. Period. By achievement. By works of the law. No human being on the face of the planet can achieve a flawless, perfect righteousness. But Jesus did. His death was a righteous death. You know what that means? His death was a righteous death, number one, because God commanded him to die. He obeyed. Righteousness. Positively obeying God. But it was also a righteous death because the law has penal, punishing requirements when you disobey it. It was a righteous death because he took the death debt on himself, fulfilling righteousness. His death was not only righteous, but his life was righteous. How was his life righteous? Because he obeyed loyally, perfectly to the end. He loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he never didn't. Flawless righteousness perfect obedience, spotless law-keeping. So in Jesus, we have the punitive 
requirements of righteousness met. In Jesus, we have the positive requirements of righteousness met. Righteousness. Jesus. And so the question comes, it just begs, how do you know that his life and his death was righteous and that it took for you? How do you know that Jesus achieved what no other human being could achieve? A perfect, flawless righteousness. How do you know? What's your hope? What can enable you to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and walk out with confidence? What gives you hope when you fail and you know you're imperfect and you know you're sinful? How do you deal with it? You know what the answer is? His eyes opened in the tomb. His feet hit the ground. That stone rolled away. And he walked out, leaving the tomb empty forever. He was raised for your justification. So Christian, freedom, joy, peace, fearlessness, impact, power, the stuff that makes you go is found in faith in the achievement of another for you. In other words, you long for peace, you long for power, you long for the Spirit to work powerfully in your life, you long for life change. How are you going to get it? Faith in the achievement of another. That's how you get it. Faith in the flawless righteousness of another for you is how you get it. Deeper tentacles of gutsy trust in real life at real time. In the righteousness of God for you and Jesus, that's how you get it. You are justified, Christian, so go in peace, go in praise, and go with power to love others. Now, I'm only going to speak to a few of you right now, so I'm being very exclusive. Forgive me. I'm speaking to those of you, and you know who you are, those of you who, who are emotionally devastated right now. The rest of you won't understand what I'm saying, so don't even try. Those of you that are, here it is. In yourself, you will always be imperfect. In yourself, you will always be flawed. In yourself, you will always be messed up. In yourself, you will always be sinful. In yourself, you will always be guilty. You must learn to live on the righteousness of another. You must learn to live on the substitute, condemnation, guilt, punishment, shame, failure of another. You must learn to live on loving acceptance that's based on another. Only then will you be able to rise from the ashes of trying to fix yourself. Finally, those of you that are trying to justify your own existence, you know who you are. 
by being good, by being right, by trying to get rid of your imperfections. Please hear these words. By works of the law, no one will be justified. There are no scraps of ability in you. There are no scraps of achievement in you. There are no scraps of righteousness in you that can enable you to be justified. Self-recommendation, being right in yourself and being right compared to others can't buy you love, as the famous theologians say. It can't buy you love and acceptance. Self-pity and self-condemnation can't pay the penalty for your sin and can't forgive you. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Put your trust in the achievement, the righteousness of another. The goal of Christianity. What is it? Faith in the achievement of another, not fixing yourself. Amen.